0: Okay, good evening everyone. Uh, Matthew chapter 5, and we are in the Sermon on the Mount. We finished uh, verse 12 last week, so we're going to pick up in verse 13 this week, and we'll try to get down through verse 20. So, Matthew chapter 5, we'll begin reading in verse 13, and there the Word of Christ says this, You are the salt of the earth. exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for our time to meet together tonight, and Lord, to be uh, gathered with uh, so many of your people. Lord, to be here in this home, we thank you for uh, Mr. and Ms. Chandler and their hospitality, Lord, to open their home up to us uh, so regularly, Lord, that we might uh, study the Bible together. So we thank you for that, and Lord, we pray for your blessing to be upon their home and on their life. Uh, Lord, we pray that you would be with us tonight as we open your word. Lord, that you would impart to us uh, words of eternal life. Lord, that we would not merely hear the word and so deceive ourselves, but that we would do what it says. Lord, that we would be like the wise man who heard your word and believed it and was quick to obey. So, Lord, may we be those who build our house upon the rock and not those who build their house on the sand. Lord, those who hear your word but do not do what it says. So, Lord, we pray that you would teach us and Lord, that we would truly be the salt of the earth, Lord, that we would be a light on this earth, Lord, shining in the darkness, and that, Lord, we would hold to your word, Lord, without any wavering, and that we would not undermine or seek to diminish any part of the Holy Scriptures, but that our desire would be to seek to know and to understand every word of God, Lord, every passage and how it applies to our life, Lord, that we might do your will, Lord, be faithful to you in all things. So, Lord, be with us tonight. Bless us as we study your word, and it is in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. All right. Well, we're in Matthew chapter 5. We began this a couple of weeks ago with the the Beatitudes where Jesus is pronouncing these blessings upon those who have these characteristics or these virtues that are contrary, right, to what we would normally expect, right? We don't typically think that those who are poor or those who are mourning, who are weak, Uh, who are being persecuted are blessed, yet Jesus pronounced a blessing upon them in the kingdom of heaven, right? Because of uh, the goodness of God and God's mercy and grace to us. And so these are the things that we ought to be seeking. And so he's continuing this teaching, teaching his disciples of what is the nature of the kingdom, what should be true of us, right? What it is that we ought to be in this present world. And so that's what we pick up in verse 13. He's gonna use two different analogies or two different metaphors to describe what the believer is like, right? And these things must be true of us. And if they're not true of us, then it proves that we're not one of his disciples. So this is a litmus test to determine whether or not we are truly a disciple of Christ or whether we are not. Okay. So verse 13 says, you are the salt of the earth, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. Here, Jesus likens the disciples to the salt of the earth. That The salt of the earth in that the believer, the Christian, both flavors and preserves this present world in the presence of God. Right In the presence of God. Now, certainly in the presence of unbelievers, we are sour to them. Right? They don't like us. We are a fragrance of death. Unto death, just as the word of Christ is. But in terms of God, in terms of his view, in terms of what we are in this present world, we are like salt, right? Salt used to flavor things, to provide a a, a greater taste to that. And salt also used in that it is a preservative, right? That keeps something from being spoiled, from being rotten, right? From going into greater and greater decay. And in this way, the believer serves as a preservative in this present world in that if the believers were removed and it was handed over to the wicked, right, without any influence from the righteous, without any influence from the word of God and the teaching of the word of God, then everything would descend into utter misery, chaos, and it would be literally like hell on earth. So the Christian is as salt in that the Christian has savoriness in this world through two things. One is the doctrines that we teach, right? The doctrines of Christ are pleasant. They are good tasting, right? They are savory in that they provide truth. They provide us with soundness concerning the things of God. So the preaching of the gospel, the preaching of the word of God is a savory fragrance or a savory taste in this present world. Also, the believer is as salt in that he lives a righteous life in his righteous life, the righteous living of the godly, provide flavor to this world as well. So both of these things testify of Christ and his righteousness, right? That's the key, that we testify of Christ and we testify of the righteousness of Christ when we are proclaiming the doctrines of Christ that are found in the Bible, right, which center upon the righteousness of God. This is, we remember, as Romans chapter 1 16 and 17 that the gospel is itself the gospel that the apostle paul was not ashamed of is in it the righteousness of god is revealed from faith for faith as it is written the righteous shall live by faith so the very definition of the gospel is that it is teaching us about the righteousness of god that is being revealed into this present world through faith in Jesus Christ. That's what the gospel is teaching us. How a wicked man, a sinful man, can be made the very righteousness of God, not through his own works, not through his own deeds, but through faith in the person and work of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sins. And when this doctrine, this gospel, is being proclaimed into the world, it provides flavor for people in that it gives to them the truth so that they might know the way of salvation and how they can have their sins forgiven also the testimony of the saints in their righteous life testifies to Christ and his righteousness it testifies to the work of god in the regeneration that he has performed in the life of the believer right when that righteousness of christ is imputed or given to the believer then that righteousness implanted within him produces in him all sorts of righteousness as well and these things are pleasing to God. They're pleasing to the saints. And even unbelievers will recognize those see, those things. They will glorify God on the day of visitation when they see our good deeds. When they see the good deeds of the saints, they will glorify God on the day of visitation. Not all of them, right? Some of them will detest it. For some, it will not be a savory taste. It'll be a detestable taste. It'll be a sour taste. They will hate it and they won't want anything to do with it. But with others, it will be like this. So this is what we are. We are the flavor of the world. We are the preservative of the world in in those things. But he says here, if salt loses its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? Right? This is what you are, the salt of the earth. This is what you should be, right? But if you don't have taste, if there is no flavor in you, right, if the salt you use doesn't actually provide any flavor to the meat or any flavor to the food, then what is it good for, right? It's good for nothing. It's absolutely worthless. He says, if there is salt with no saltiness, right, how can that flavor, that saltiness, be restored, right? It's impossible. But at that point, the salt, what is perceived to be salt, is no longer good for anything. It's only good to be thrown out and trampled under the feet of of men. Now, what does he mean by this, right? Salt without flavor does not mean that someone can be a true Christian and then become an unbeliever, that someone can be a true child of God, be true salt of the earth, and then lose that salt and cease to be a believer, cease to be a child of God, and then become unsalty. What he means by this is a pretend Christian, someone who claims to be a child of God. He claims to be the salt of the earth, right? This is what he says about himself. This is his own testimony concerning himself. But when you look at him, there's no saltiness to him. There's no flavor. There's no preservative. He's no different than the world. So he's claiming to be the salt of the earth. But in reality, there's no saltiness to him. He's pretend. He's false. He's false salt. And salt that is false that does not provide flavor, and does not provide any preservative, it's worthless, it's detestable, it's absolutely good for nothing. So this is a so-called Christian. A so-called Christian who is not the salt of the earth is good for nothing. He has no flavor, and God will reject him and cast him under feet. Luke chapter 6, Luke chapter 6. Luke 6, verse 43. Here, it's again, impossible for someone to be true salt, but have no saltiness. Just as it's impossible for someone to be a good tree and yet bear no good fruit. Right. It, it doesn't happen that way. Luke six forty three. No good tree bears bad fruit, nor again does a bad tree bear good fruit. For each tree is known by its own fruit. Figs are not gathered from thorn bushes, nor are grapes picked from a bramble bush. The good person out of the good treasure of his heart produces good, and the evil person out of his evil treasure produces evil. For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks, or his mouth speaks. So the good tree does not bear bad fruit, and the bad tree cannot bear good fruit. Now, of course, we know in this life, the Christian will have a mixture because of the presence of the flesh, and indwelling sin, there will remain remnants of sin, remnants of the flesh. However, the Christian in this life is a good tree. Therefore, he will produce some measure of good fruit. It is impossible for someone to be a true Christian, to be a good tree, and for them to not produce some good fruit, right? There will be some good fruit, and every tree that bears good fruit, what does Christ do to it? He prunes it so that it will bear more good fruit, right? This is our sanctification. He prunes us, he tests us, he tries us, right, through the various trials and tribulations of this life. He prunes us with the word of God, through the teaching of the word, when we're together with one another, or also when we're reading it on our own. He prunes us by other men, right? When we help one another, we confront each other's sins, we help each other in our Christian life so that we all progress in godliness and righteousness, and we bear more and more good fruit. And then the bad tree, one who is a bad tree, a wicked person with a dead heart, he cannot produce true righteousness. He cannot produce true good fruit. At best, he can produce hypocritical fruit, right? He can do some things outwardly, but it's not coming from a heart that loves God. He doesn't have the inward reality, so those things will always be exposed as being false, right? They may look good initially on the outside, but on the inside, it's rotten. Just like the apple looks good on the outside, but if there's a worm on the inside, I don't want to eat it, right? Nobody wants to eat it because it's not going to be any good. And when you break it open, it reveals that it is itself rotten fruit that is no good. So the good person out of the good treasure brings forth good. The evil person out of the evil treasure brings forth evil because it is out of the abundance of the heart that his mouth speaks. Right. They are not that the mouth is the only indicator of what's in the heart, but the mouth is a direct indicator of what is in the heart of a man. I believe, therefore I spoke. Those who have true faith in their heart will speak the word of God. They're going to speak about what they know, what they've seen, what they know to be true from the Word of God. Because it's in their heart. (laughs) If God's word is in our heart, it's going to come out of our mouth. And it's going to come out in other aspects of our life as well. So Another example, real quick, uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 5. This would be someone who at this point would be classified as salt without saltiness. 1 Corinthians 5 and verse 9. Says, I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people, not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world or the greedy or swindlers or idolaters, since then you would need to go out of the world. But now I'm writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name brother if he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed or is an idolater, reviler, drunkard, or swindler, not even to eat with such a person. So here, one who is, bears the name brother. Right. He has the name. He's a so-called brother, but he doesn't have saltiness. So he's claiming to be salt, but there's no saltiness in his life. Right, that's what he's describing here. Not a misinterpretation. A false interpretation would be that someone can be a true Christian, true salt, a good tree, and then they can go and convert back into a bad tree. That you can be a Christian one day, A child of God one day and a child of devil the next day. And then the next day, a child of God again. And then the next day, a child of the devil again. And you just go back and forth. And you're always in limbo, wondering which side you're going to be on. You just hope you end on a good day, right? You hope you end on a good day and then you're going to make it. He can't mean that because he doesn't lose any of his sheep. It's impossible that Jesus would lose one of his sheep. He gives them eternal life and they will never perish. So he has to mean this in the sense of a false convert, a false believer, a so-called brother, uh, someone who claims to be a child of God, but doesn't have the reality and it's not manifested in his life, right? And this person, a hypocritical Christian or a fake Christian is worthless. He's worthless because when the master comes to this tree, what does he find? Nothing, it's barren. There's no fruit on it. There's no fruit on it. And if it's got no fruit, then it's only fit to be cut down and cast into fire. Okay, verse 14. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Here, Jesus says, not only are you the salt of the earth, but also you are the light of the world, the light of the world. Meaning again, the Christians, the believers, they have the truth of God. They have the light of the knowledge of the glory of Christ, right? We possess that knowledge and other people do not possess it. So we have the light. We have the truth. The world lives in darkness. They live in idolatry. They live in futility right? They are blind. They are chasing after the things of this world, the God of this world. Their God is their belly. They're blinded by Satan. This is what is true of the world. But the Christian, the believer, one whose eyes have been opened, he has seen the light himself, and now he also possesses that light within him so that he gives light to the world. He gives light to the world in the same way that the moon gives light, right? Not its own light, but the light of the sun shines on the moon and then it gives light at night. So also we, we have no light in ourselves. We possess nothing in ourselves, but Christ fills us with his light and then we shine as well and we give light to this present world. And what is the purpose of light, right? What is the purpose of us having this light? Well, a city set on a hill cannot be hidden. If you build the city on the hill, the purpose is so that people from many miles away, from a great distance, will be able to see that that's the city that we're going to. In many cities, especially in the modern era, you can see them from a great distance because of the lights that are shining out, emanating out from the city. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket. That's not the purpose. The purpose of lighting the lamp in the home is not to hide it, but rather to put it in a place so that it will give forth its light, so that people are able to see, so that they can see and not trip over things, right? And they're able to move about in the home. Well, in the same way, Christ has given us his light, right? The truth of the words of God, the Holy Bible that he's put on our lips. And also he here specifically mentions our good works, our good deeds, the way that we live, the godly life that we live should be a light that testifies to people of the righteousness of Christ. And the purpose of Christ giving to us this light is not so that we would hide it, but rather so that people would see it, that they would see it and give glory to our Father who is in heaven, so that they might see our good works and give glory to God meaning that the Christian life is not a private life. It's not something that we practice in the confines of our home. Now that's what they want us to do today. They want us, okay, if you want to be a Christian, that's fine. Keep your mouth shut, stay in your home. They won't won't be content with that either, but that's what they want. And we can't come into the public. We can't go into the public square. We can't say what we believe. We just have to practice our religion at home and keep our mouth shut. But that's not what Jesus says. He says that we are to practice it openly, right, in this present world. Not that we're practicing it to be seen by men, Right. right? But when we are practicing it, it is impossible that it will not be seen by men, right? That's not the purpose of us doing it so that we receive the praise of men. But when we're living the Christian life, it's going to be obvious to everyone. It's going to be obvious to other believers. It's going to be obvious to our family. It's going to be obvious to friends, to even people we work with, acquaintances. It's going to be obvious to everyone who we are and what it is that we are doing. And this is the way it's supposed to be. God intends it this way in order to bring glory and honor to himself so that when they see your good deeds, they're going to glorify God. Because the only way this can be true The only way this light can exist within a person is by the miracle of God. It takes the work of God, the power of God to bring this about. For someone to go from being a sinful, wicked man and for God to convert that person and change him into a new creature that is the exact opposite of what he used to be. And people are going to see those things and they'll glor- some will glorify God, now others will revile, but they'll still recognize it. That they're reviling sees that they recognize there is a difference, and there is a change in the person. Okay, a couple of passages. John chapter 8. John chapter 8. John chapter eight, verse 12 says, again, Jesus spoke to them saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. So Christ is the light of the world. Yet here he says, we are the light of the world. So he is the primary light, right? He is the light. He has light in and of himself. We don't have any light in ourselves but then he gives us his light. He fills us with his light so that then we also become the light of the world as well, right? Not in the same way that Christ is, but we derive our light from him. 1 John chapter one. 1 John chapter one. Verse five, First John 1, 5, this is the message we have heard from him and proclaim to you that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, his son cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. So God is light. In him is no darkness at all. And here we're talking about sin. right? God has no sin. He is perfect righteousness. There's no sin in God. Now again, We are not light in that regard because we still have remnants of sin, but we're not what we used to be in that God has changed us so that now we also have the righteousness of Christ within us. And it's producing that righteousness in us. It's producing those good works within. James chapter 1 James chapter 1 and verse 17. James 1, 17, Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. So God is the Father of lights. The Father of lights. Then also 1 Timothy chapter 6 and verse 15. 1 Timothy 6:15 says he who is the blessed and only sovereign the king of kings and lord of lords who alone has immortality who dwells in unapproachable light whom no one has ever seen or can see to him be honor and eternal dominion amen. So there It says that god dwells in unapproachable light unapproachable light so god is light and then his spirit within us and his word on our lips causes us to be light in this present world his spirit causes us to walk in the paths of god in the righteousness of god and then the word of god upon our lips causes us to provide light for this present world so that they're no longer living in darkness, but now they have the light of the knowledge of God. And here, he also mentions that they may see your good deeds and be glorified by your Father in heaven. And again, this is not as the hypocrite, right? Hypocrites, they want people to see their good deeds so that they can receive praise in this present world. The true believer is not living the Christian life to receive praise from men. He's not doing it for that reason. He's doing it to receive praise from God. Now, when he's doing it, it's impossible that men will not recognize it, but he's not doing it for those reasons. But the hypocrite, on the other hand, he wants to practice his so-called righteousness, but he wants to do it so everyone knows about it so that they can praise him and he can receive praise of men in this present life. That would be Matthew chapter 6. Matthew chapter six, verse one. It says, "'Beware of practicing your righteousness "'before other people to be seen by them. "'For then you will have no reward "'from your Father who is in heaven. "'Thus when you give to the needy, "'sound no trumpet before you, "'as the hypocrites do in the synagogue "'and in the streets, "'that they may be praised by others. "'Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. "'But when you give to the needy, "'do not let your left hand know "'what your right hand is doing.' Don't practice your righteousness before others to be seen by them. But that's no contradiction with what Jesus says here, that they may see your good deeds and glorify your father in heaven. Because here he's talking about doing it for the purpose of being seen, right? That's why this person is doing their giving so that people will tell them how generous they are, right? Oh, look at how uh, gracious this man is. They're doing it to receive that praise. They pray, in open places, right? And they give these lengthy prayers. They use big words and they (laughs) start crying and do all that kind of stuff so that people will come up and say, oh, that was such a wonderful prayer. But then they don't pray at home in private. Well, why are they not praying in private? Because no one's there. No one's there to praise them and see it except for God. And they're not doing it for God. But we should pray for God. We should give for the Lord. Now, again, if someone sees these things, right, in the proper context, then there's no problem with that. Such as when we offer public prayers at church, that's a part of our worship. Well, there's nothing wrong with that as long as what we're doing there is not something that we just do there and we don't do at home, right? It needs to be consistency in our private practice and also in what is taking place publicly. So that's what he means here, to be seen by others in the sense that when we're living a righteous life, it is impossible for that to be hidden and for people not to see it. This is the same as it says in 1 Peter chapter 2. 1 Peter chapter 2 verse 11. It says, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. So they are living as sojourners and exiles in that we're not a part of this world. We don't belong to this present world. We belong to heaven. That's where our true citizenship is we are strangers and aliens on this earth with God. God doesn't belong here right? in the sense that God is righteous and he's not sinful, he's not evil like this world and like the people of the world. Right. So we also are strangers and exiles on this present earth. And since we don't belong here, but our citizenship is in heaven, then we have to abstain from the passions of the flesh. right? The passions that come from our sinful, fleshly side we have to fight against them and abstain from them, not give in to them. They're going to rise up within us and we have to crucify them and put them to death. Those things are waging war against our soul. So what do we have to do to those things? We got to wage war against them. They're warring against us, so we got to war against them by crucifying them and putting them to death and keeping our conduct pure among the Gentiles, living an honorable life, They live dishonorable lives. They live impure lives, but we have to live a pure life. Then when they malign us as evildoers, they're going to see our good deeds and they're going to have to give glory to God because they're they're going to be silenced. They're going to have nothing to say. There'll be no credibility to the things that they say. But if we're giving into the flesh and living a godless life, then they're going to say that we're hypocrites, right? And that we're frauds and phonies and we don't want that to be the case okay then one last passage daniel chapter 12 daniel 12 this shining as a light is a precursor to what will be true of the righteous in the life to come right in this life we shine partially but in the life to come we'll shine fully Daniel chapter 12 and verse 2. Daniel 12, 2 says, And many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life, and some to shame and everlasting contempt. And those who are wise shall shine like the brightness of the sky above, and those who turn many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. So here Daniel the prophet is preaching the resurrection of both the righteous and the wicked. Correct? Isn't that what he's preaching? The resurrection of the just and the unjust. Believers and unbelievers. And that's all before the day of Pentecost and before the New Testament was written. So the Old Testament teaches the resurrection, the final day of judgment, and the consigning either to heaven or hell, whether one is righteous or wicked. Then of the righteous, he says, they're going to shine like the brightness of the sky above and like the stars forever and ever. This is what will be true of us in the world to come. We will shine like the stars forever and ever because we will be made like Christ. Right. When we see him, we will be like him. All of our sin will be removed and we will be righteous. We will have the righteousness of Christ dazzling within us okay verse 17 now verse 17 to 20 is very very important passage of scripture in all the bible because we have here uh, the doctrine of scripture from the very mouth of christ so jesus is teaching the doctrine of scripture his view of the word of god and also he's teaching us how to interpret the bible right how it is that we are to interpret the Bible, and that is with harmony and unity. This is the approach we should have to the Bible, that the Bible is not at odds with one another. One author is not at odds with another author. One part not at odds with another part, but rather they go together in perfect unity and there is perfect harmony in the scriptures. And this should be the case because all scripture is breathed out by God. Right. right, All of the prophets and all of the, pro- of the apostles, none of them spoke their own interpretation, but each and every one of them was carried along by the Holy Spirit. Right. No prophecy of Scripture ever originated in a man's own interpretation or in his own mind. But the prophets of old and the apostles of Christ, all of them spoke by the Spirit of Christ. In right. the Spirit of Christ within them, cannot contradict himself. Otherwise, God's schizophrenic, and God's not schizophrenic, right? So it would be impossible for something to be true in one generation, and then in the next generation, it's false, right? For one ethic or one way of morality to be true one day, and then 100 years later, it's not true, but now the opposite thing is true. This cannot be the case because it's the same spirit of Christ, and Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever, and he who is the glory of Israel does not lie or change his mind. God is not a man that he should change his mind. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. So this is the attitude, the approach we have to have to the Bible, that there is unity and that there is harmony. And the best way to interpret the Bible is to let scripture interpret scripture, right? And we're going to get into this in Malachi here in a week or two, that All of scripture is itself from Moses onward, right? You have Moses, the first five books, and then everything is an interpretation of what came before it. They're just simply interpreting scripture over and over and over again. I was reading Hebrews chapter one this week. All Hebrews chapter one is, is a string of quotations from the Old Testament with him making little points here and there to prove that, Jesus Christ is the unique son of God who is superior to the angels and superior to the prophets. And he's just quoting the Old Testament to prove that point. So he's interpreting the Old Testament scriptures for us. So this is the approach we have to have. And if there's something that is confusing or difficult or hard to understand, then we need to search the scriptures and there will be other passages that will help us understand those things. And those passages that are Uh, more clear, that are easier to understand, we need to use them to help us understand the more difficult passages so that we have the right interpretation. Also, uh, all this is uh, introductory. The apostles. The apostles are the best interpreters of the Old Testament. So if the Holy Apostle tells us this Old Testament passage means this, that's it, In in the line, right? There's no debate about it. I don't care what some scholar says, what some seminary professor says, it doesn't matter. So if the apostle tells us, for example, that Psalm 110 is about Christ, then that's what it's about. That is the only interpretation of Psalm 110. There wasn't another interpretation when David wrote it, and then now there's a new interpretation during the time of the apostle. That is the one and only interpretation of Psalm 110 From the time that it was written until the present time. And it'll always be that case. That (laughs) Psalm 110 is about Jesus Christ. Not about David, and then later about Christ, but about Christ. And David himself knew that he was not speaking about himself, but he knew that he was speaking about Christ. He knew that, right? And he knew and understood those things. Okay, another point to make. We should not allow scripture to contradict scripture. This is what people want to do. They want to put the Bible at odds with one another. The Bible, the prophets and the apostles, the New Testament and the Old Testament, the red letters and the black letters, the words of Christ and the words of Moses. This is what people want to do. Just today, I was reading an email from a guy from about a year ago, and this man was saying, the he he was comparing the law of moses to the law of christ as if they're different the law of moses was a burden but the law of christ is liberty this is what the man was saying so he's putting the law of moses and the law of christ in contradiction with one another right saying these types of things but that's not the way that we should look at it we should not let scripture contradict other scriptures Or say that there are some parts of the Bible that are more inspired than other parts of the Mm -hmm. Bible. That's not the case at all. Or that there are some parts that are more profitable than other parts. Yes, some parts are easier to understand, but all Scripture has been breathed out by God, and all of it is profitable. All of it is necessary. God is not speaking for His own pleasure and leisure. But every word we have in the Bible has been given to us by God, For our benefit, right? It has a purpose and it's our job to study it, to understand it, to apply it so that we know what it means and then we know how it ought to affect what we believe and what it is that we ought to do. This interpretation of making the Bible contradict goes back thousands of years, thousands of years to an early church heretic by the name of Marcion, right? Marcion or Marcionism. He lived around 200 AD, and he was teaching that not all of the Bible was good. He believed the God of the Old Testament was a tyrant, was mean, was evil, right? He was an evil God, and then Jesus Christ came, and he's a good God. So the Old Testament God and then Jesus Christ are not one and the same. The God of the Old Testament is evil, and then the God of some of the New Testament is good. And he had his own version of the Bible. He had his own version of the Gospel of Luke that he edited. So he cut some parts out. He rejected the Gospel of Matthew, the Gospel of Mark, the Gospel of John. He rejected the Book of Acts. He accepted eleven of Paul's epistles, but then he rejected the Pastoral epistles. He rejected the uh, Epistle to the Hebrews, First and Second Peter, First, Second, Third John, Jude, and Revelation. So he wrote his own version of the Bible. And then he was presenting this as if it were true. And then there was a uh, man named Tertullian who was his opponent. He actually, he wrote a treatise called Against Marcion. See how simple that is? That's the way we ought to do. Against Marcionism or against Marcion. And he was the one defending the faith against this heretic who was later condemned by the churches. And then this led to them establishing that, no, we cannot do these things. Also, you see this in the Samaritans. This is what was going on in John chapter four with the woman at the well, the debate between the Samaritan and the Jews as to where the place that they should worship. The reason the Samaritans rejected Jerusalem is because they only accepted the first five books of the Bible. They only accepted the Pentateuch, the law of Moses as being inspired by God and they rejected the rest of it. Well, Jerusalem was selected later on, right? In later writings, during the time of David, and they rejected that. And that's why they worshiped at Mount Gerizim. And this is why they're having this debate, even during the time of Christ, that the woman at the well brings up. So this should not surprise us. This is what people do. They want, they hate the Bible, but they pretend like they love the Bible. Most people won't just come out and say, I hate the Old Testament. (laughs) I hate the Ten Commandments. I hate Moses and his law. I hate righteousness. No one will say that, but they'll say, well, you know, we have to understand the relationship between the old and the new covenant and and that's the old and we're in the new and those things have been done away with and now it's all just freedom and love and liberty and we can do whatever we please. This is what people believe and this is prominent within the churches today. This is everywhere in the churches today. So we've got to reject that. Jesus rejects it, right? And Jesus gives to us the proper view of the Bible and of the Old Testament prophets, right? Of the Old Testament prophets. See, people, they're so demented. They think that if we can get rid of the Old Testament, we can get rid of righteousness. As if the New Testament doesn't teach righteousness. It teaches righteousness. Every doctrine can be taught in the Old Testament or the New Testament. Every act of righteousness can be taught in either the old or the new, right? So it's all over the Bible. We just have to believe what the word of God says. Okay, so verse 17, verse 17, 17, do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. So Jesus himself says, he knows that this is going to be a temptation. This is going to be something that people are going to want to do. They're going to want to set Jesus against Moses. And isn't that what the Pharisees were doing constantly? They were saying that Moses was on their side, right? That they had Moses and they were disciples of Moses, but we don't know where you came from. As if Jesus is teaching something contrary to Moses, but Jesus and Moses aren't in contradiction, Jesus and Moses are in perfect agreement and in perfect harmony. And that's why he's saying, I did not come to abolish the law and the prophets, but rather to fulfill them. The law and the prophets are constantly predicting who? The coming of who? The coming of the Christ. The salvation, the forgiveness of sins, the eternal life that would be accomplished through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sins. Isn't that what we just read in Daniel chapter 12, verses 2 and 3? He's talking about resurrection. Well, how does resurrection take place? On what basis? The death and resurrection of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sins. How is it that we shine like stars in the sky? The death and resurrection of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sins. So this is what Daniel was proclaiming in his own days. And what they predicted was fulfilled in the person and in the work of Jesus Christ. So he's not doing something different, something new. It's not that in the Old Testament, there was one program that God had with Israel and it failed. So now he's gonna try something new and send Jesus and see if this works now. Plan A, and now we're on to plan B. That's not the case at all. From start to finish, there's always one plan. Plan A, A plus, A plus plus, and that is Jesus Christ. And the law and the prophets predicted the coming of Christ and then Christ fulfilled those things. And then the apostles are proclaiming those things to the people. Right. What the prophets predicted has been fulfilled in our days in the person of Jesus of Nazareth. Read the book of Acts. We did a study on the book of Acts. Isn't that what they're always teaching the people? That Christ, Jesus of Nazareth, is the promised Christ that was predicted, that was promised to our fathers. And then you need to believe in him for the forgiveness of sins and for eternal Life. So he did not come to abolish the law and the prophets. He did not come to abolish the Ten Commandments. He did not come to abolish Moses. He came to fulfill what all of these things promised and predicted. Okay, Matthew 22. Matthew 22. Matthew chapter 22, verse 34. Matthew twenty two thirty four, But when the Pharisees heard that he had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered together. And one of them, a lawyer, asked him a question to test him. Teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? He said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment, and the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. Right. Right. So, do we believe in the commandment to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind? Is that still in force today? Yes. Yes. What about love your neighbor as yourself? Absolutely. Absolutely. And the naysayers who say the uh, law has been abolished, that we're not under the law anymore, we're under love. They would say, Oh yeah, love God and love your neighbor. Well, Jesus says that on those two commandments depend what? All the law and the the prophets. Every passage in the law and the prophets, which is the entirety of the Old Testament, is in one way or another explaining what it means to love God or what it means to love your neighbor as yourself. Right? Isn't that what all the law and the prophets are teaching? How to love God by believing the gospel of Jesus Christ and how to love your neighbor as yourself? As yourself, So that's what is there. So it's not in contradiction. Also, Romans chapter 3. Romans chapter 3, verse 27. says, Then what becomes of our boasting? It is excluded. Mm-hmm. By what kind of law? By law of works? No, but by the law of faith. For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. Or is God the God of Jews only? Is he not the God of Gentiles also? Yes, of Gentiles also. Since God is one who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith, do we then overthrow the law by this faith? By no means. On the contrary, we uphold the law. So there, does faith in Christ overthrow the law? And his answer is no. We uphold the law. So faith in Christ and the law are not in contradiction if we understand them correctly. Now, faith in Christ and works of the law for salvation, those are in contradiction. But what prophet ever taught people to be saved by their own works of the law? None of them taught that. That's the whole point of Romans chapter 10. Moses writes about the righteousness based upon the law that the person who does the commandment shall live by them. But the righteousness based on faith says, and then he quotes from Deuteronomy. Right. Moses says, do not say in your heart who will ascend into heaven, that is to bring Christ down or who will descend into the abyss, that is to bring Christ up from the dead. So Moses taught them not to trust in their own works of righteousness, but to trust in Christ. And didn't Moses in Deuteronomy 18 tell them that God would raise up a prophet from among them who would be like Moses and that's the one that they should listen to? So Moses knew that there was a greater prophet than him coming. Well, how can anyone be a greater prophet than Moses? Only if he is the son of God, only in that way. So God, he did not come to abolish the law. So our approach to the Bible then must be that everything in the Bible is true. It is from God. We must believe it and we must practice it. Whether in the Old Testament or, or in the New Testament. And the only reason we would not practice something taught in the Old Testament is if we have a New Testament apostle telling us that this is no longer applicable today, because there were some ceremonial aspects of the Old Testament that were intended to be temporary. Some of the outward rituals were intended for the time of Moses until the time of Christ, to hold the people in suspense, to prepare them for the coming of Christ. But then after the Christ has come, those things are no longer applicable. But we only don't do those things if we have an apostle telling us that we don't do those things. The easiest example of this would be the food laws, right, the dietary laws of the Old Testament. Are we forbidden today from eating pork? from eating a snake. I mean, I wouldn't eat a snake. I'd stay away from them. But it. But reptiles, these types of things. In the Old Testament, they were forbidden. They could not eat pork. They could not eat reptiles. There were certain birds, certain animals that were forbidden for them to eat. And that was a part of the Old Testament rituals, the Old Testament ceremonies that they kept. And they were obligated to keep those things. But when we have an apostle or our Lord Jesus Christ telling us that all foods are clean, then that indicates to us that that was temporary and that now it's no longer applicable and we're not sinning if we eat pork or if we eat a reptile or something else like that. So only some of these ceremonial aspects were temporary and then when Christ came, those things faded away or they were being ready to pass away and now they do pass away. Another example is we don't go to the temple and we don't offer animal sacrifices anymore. We don't go to a priest right, to offer these sacrifices. Again, all of those aspects of the rituals of the law of Moses were temporary before the coming of Christ, but now we don't do those things. Okay, let me show you this from the Bible. Mark chapter seven. Mark chapter seven. There's another approach to the Bible that I reject that says nothing in the Old Testament is applicable unless it's repeated in the New Testament. Okay, have you ever heard that? I have, yes. If it's not repeated in the New Testament, then we don't have to obey it. Well, the New Testament doesn't say anything about tripping blind people, so is it okay to trip blind people in the New Testament? It's only in the Old Testament. Or it doesn't say anything about removing boundary stones, so is it okay to move my property over and get a little bit of my neighbors, it's not repeated in the New Testament, it's only in the Old Testament. You see how stupid this is? Right? That's what it is. So we should reject that. There, are, but there's people who literally say these things, right? They say this as if it's legitimate. We shouldn't listen to them. Right. Okay, Mark <laughs> chapter 7, verse 14. I mean, we can't go around tripping blind people, right? Mistreating them. No way. No. That's that's horrible. Mark seven, fourteen. He called the people to him again and said to them, Hear me, all of you, and understand. There is nothing outside a person that by going into him can defile him, but the things that come out of a person are what defile him. And when he had entered the house and left the people, his disciples asked him about the parable. He said to them, Then are you also without understanding? Do you not see that whatever goes into a person from outside cannot defile him, since it enters not his heart but his stomach and is expelled? Thus he declared all foods clean. And he said, what comes out of a person is what defiles him. For from within, out of the heart of man, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All these evil things come from within, and they defile a person. So, nothing from without that goes into the man can defile him. It doesn't enter his heart, but his stomach. Now, that's not a truth that just started when Jesus began teaching this. That's been true since the very beginning. So then what was the purpose of those laws? It was to teach them to make a distinction between what is clean and unclean, between sin and righteousness. They they were taught that through these outward ceremonies. That was the purpose, but it was never the case that eating the pork was itself defiling their heart. Now, it was necessary for them to do that because it was commanded by God, but it wasn't touching their heart. It was going into their stomach, and they were to learn the lesson from those things. And in that way, those food laws are still beneficial to us today. Not to practice them, but to teach us to make a distinction between sin and righteousness, between what is clean and what is unclean, and to have nothing to do with what is unclean. Another passage, Acts chapter 10. And you see that in Mark chapter seven, it says, "Thus he declared all foods clean." Right? That's a most of your Bibles will have that in a parenthetical statement. That that's a commentary by the apostle. That when Jesus is saying this, this is the obvious implication is that all foods are clean. That's what he's declaring. Okay, Acts chapter ten and verse nine. But Peter said, by no means, Lord, for I have never eaten anything that is common or unclean. And the voice came to him again a second time. What God has made clean, do not call common. This happened three times and a thing was taken up at once to heaven. So here, what God has made clean, do not call common. And God commands him to rise, kill, and eat. So those laws that he had observed and followed his whole life, Ritually or ceremonially are now, he's telling him that, no, this is not the case anymore. And you can eat these things. And then also Hebrews chapter 8. Hebrews chapter 8. In verse 1. now the point of what we are saying is this, we have such a high priest, one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven, a minister in the holy places, in the true tent that the Lord set up, not man. Right? Notice that the true tent that the Lord set up, not man. So he's not talking about the tent on earth. He's talking about the one in heaven. And then what was the purpose of the tent on earth? It was a representation of the one in heaven, right? And what God would do in heaven. For every high priest is appointed to offer gifts and sacrifices. Thus it is necessary for this priest also to have something to offer. Now if he were on earth, he would not be a priest at all since there are priests who offer gifts according to the law. They serve a copy and shadow of the heavenly things. For when Moses was about to erect the tent, he was instructed by God saying see that you make it That you make everything according to the pattern that was shown to you on the mountain. But as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is much more excellent than the old, as the covenant he mediates is better, since it is enacted on better promises. So there, Moses knew and understood that what he was instituting on earth in terms of the outward forms of worship that went with the law of Moses were copies and shadows of heavenly things, heavenly realities, because God told him, make it according to the pattern, to the pattern, the pattern of what? What is the pattern? Heaven, right? The heaven, the spiritual is the pattern. And you make this earthly copy, this earthly shadow, according to the pattern of the heavenly thing, the heavenly reality that I'm teaching you. And then Moses, as a true prophet, and as a man of God, would he be telling the people to trust in the earthly shadow? In the animal sacrifice? Of course not. He knows that it's a copy and a shadow of a greater heavenly spiritual reality, so he's going to be telling the people that these things are copies and shadows, and you need to put your faith not in the animal, but in what the animal represents. And the animal represents who? the death of Christ for the forgiveness of sins right. that's what the end represents now that was necessary temporarily the this type of worship the temple the sacrifices the priests necessary until who came Jesus. until the one that they predicted right. until the coming of Christ then when Christ comes those things are ready to pass away they're no longer necessary or needed anymore and that would be verse 13. In speaking of a new covenant, he makes the first one obsolete. And what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. So the old one is ready to vanish away. Okay, well, I think we'll go ahead and stop there for the evening. And we'll pick up in verse 18 because I want to make sure that we give thorough attention to this. Because it is so important uh, to understand these things correctly, properly. It's going to help us have a right understanding of the Old and New Testament and their relationship together. If we can understand these things, then it'll make the Old Testament especially come to life and it won't seem bizarre or strange to us, but it'll be like, oh, okay. They're believing the same things that we believe and they're dealing with the same issues that we deal with and they're trying to live a godly life the same way we're trying to live a godly life right? They're dealing with the same exact things that we are. Uh, So instead of it seeing bizarre, strange, and foreign, which is what it was like when I was growing up. So uh, it never made sense. And we want the Old Testament and the New Testament to make sense, right? So that we understand it and we know what God expects of us. Okay. So we'll stop there tonight. And we've got a few minutes for any questions or comments about the study tonight.